0: Hi there, and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, the carbon footprint of cryptocurrency. What's the problem with the world's fast-rising digital currency solution, and can we fix it? I speak to the Dutch economist behind the popular DigEconomist website. After that, Mike Moffitt shares his list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started.
1: ...picked up pace last week when Elon Musk said Tesla would no longer accept Bitcoin as payment, citing the large energy use needed to mine
2: Bitcoin. He, uh, he said that Others Tesla said would no longer problem. be accepting Bitcoin because of concerns of its environmental footprint as payment Robert for Creek Tesla gas vehicles. gas plant just so south
0: of Calgary of could soon be home to thousands of huge computers mining for Bitcoin. A staggering
1: number of computers that would require a staggering amount of energy... And because the energy is coming from fossil fuel, it means more greenhouse gas.
0: Here's a question for you. What do Sweden, Norway, Argentina, Belgium, Ukraine, and oh, let's throw in one more, Chile, all have in common? Answer, they are all countries that individually consume less electricity in a year than Bitcoin does. Yes, Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency that is shaking up the financial world, is a big energy hog. And as you've just heard, its energy usage and carbon footprint have been in the news a lot this year. Yet Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies continue to grow in popularity and to gradually enter the mainstream, such that they are now valued at about $2 trillion globally. And as they continue to grow, presumably, so does their environmental impact. Or does it? Today is your opportunity to get fully briefed on all the recent chatter about the climate and other environmental impacts of cryptocurrency. How can a so-called currency have an environmental impact anyway? What are the dynamics behind it? And can cryptocurrency go green? Those are the questions on my mind at least. And if all this cryptocurrency stuff sounds Dutch to you, don't worry, it does to me too. And my next interview will include answers to some of our most basic questions. Speaking of Dutch, my first guest is Alex de Vries. Alex is an economist based out of the Netherlands, where he monitors digital trends in finance and compiles his analysis on his popular DigiEconomist website. He also operates the Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, which will certainly be a topic of conversation. Alex, great to reach you. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Alex, people have been hearing increasingly about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but lots of people, like me, still don't have, you know, a perfect handle on exactly what they are and how they work. I'm sure this is an explanation you give all the time. Can you give us a quick 101?
1: Yes, in the very essence Uh, Bitcoin is not that different from having digital dollars, except the thing is that your digital dollars are in your bank account. And in Bitcoin, there is nobody in charge. There are no financial intermediaries or governments that control the system. It's an open network where people can make payments directly to each other without needing uh, a financial institution in between there
0: huh and And what's the attraction of using a cryptocurrency? Is it just that it's it's decentralized, or are there other advantages to uh, this form of digital money?
1: Now, the decentralization is really what is the key advantage and the fact that you don't have to go to a financial institution because, you know, it might be an institution that you don't trust. You might be dealing with a corrupt government. Uh, If that is the case, then it is extremely attractive to not have those parties involved in the process of making payments. Uh, Now, obviously, that doesn't apply everywhere, but this is something that originated back in the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, That's when Satoshi Nakamoto came up with the Bitcoin white paper. And in 2009, Bitcoin started running. And that's no coincidence, because at that time, the trust in the financial system was also at an all-time low.
0: Hmm. And now, you know, covering some more basics here, Bitcoin is the most popular of these cryptocurrencies, but there are others, right?
1: There's thousands of others. Uh, by now. So uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to name more than 10 probably, although definitely not worth the same. Huh? Bitcoin is still the most popular one and still dominates the cryptocurrency market. So even though there's thousands of alternatives to Bitcoin that actually don't work very differently than Bitcoin does, uh, Bitcoin is still by far uh, the biggest one, uh, still uh, having a majority market share in this cryptocurrency market.
0: One last question to cover the basics here. What is the potential of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? How how big should we expect them to get? Will they become the global currency of choice?
1: And there's two elements to this question. Like First of all, you can wonder how high can the value of these currencies go, and there's actually no ceiling to that because the Bitcoin price can just go up uh, infinitely for as long as people are willing to pay that amount for it. Uh, But the thing is, if you look at to what extent can you actually use a system like Bitcoin for something, that's very limited. If you um, look at the Bitcoin blockchain, it can handle effectively maybe, if you're lucky, around five transactions per second at most. Whereas if you have a traditional payment provider like Visa, they can handle 65,000 transactions per second if they have to. Uh, So, you know, we're talking a complete different order of magnitude here. The global financial system is handling more than 700 billion uh, electronic payments a year. Bitcoin can do uh, at most 150 million. Hmm. With such a limited system, yeah, there's simply no way for Bitcoin to replace much of our alternative systems that we're using at the moment.
0: Okay, and and have you been surprised at uh, at how quickly Bitcoin has grown in value, or or was that to be expected a few years ago?
1: Well, I think we have seen this happen several times over the course of Bitcoin's history. So in that sense, it's no no surprise that the Bitcoin value can just jump up to the to to incredible levels uh, all of a sudden Um, yeah it happened uh, uh, infamously in 2017 when the Bitcoin price first hit $20,000 at the end of the year and then dropped to $3,000 in, um, well, near the end of 2018. But before that, uh, uh, let's not forget that Bitcoin was trading at less than a penny before 2010. So it's been making massive moves for more than a decade now. And in that sense, no, it's not surprising that we see these movements. Although it is, of course, uh, surprising that, you know, this currency is now more valuable than ever before, despite not having any uh, additional capabilities than it had before.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with Bitcoin now trading above forty thousand dollars, so uh, a big increase in the value. Um, now, increasingly, as as I suppose, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have become more popular, it's getting more scrutiny. And uh, certainly, earlier this year, uh, there was a lot of scrutiny that uh, that emerged about Bitcoin's environmental footprint. Um, what can you say about about the footprint of of cryptocurrencies? What is the size of that footprint, and what's the source of that footprint?
1: Yes, well, let's first you know take a step back and uh, let's consider that at the very beginning of Bitcoin's lifetime, Satoshi Nakamoto, the anonymous founder of Bitcoin defined that there would never be more than 21 million bitcoins so the in, 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 in no point in the future there will there be more than 21 million bitcoins and they are issued slowly over time as a reward for people to help making new blocks of transactions for this blockchain so help help run the system
0: and Alex Alex who's who's controlling that who's who's kind of managing uh, the Bitcoin production so that that cap uh, is respected?
1: Uh, well, it's hard coded in the software, and as long as everyone keeps running the same version of the software, then that's uh, not going to change. Uh, if you're running the Bitcoin software, it it will include this hard limit of 21 million bitcoins. And there's uh, theoretically uh, you could create a Bitcoin version that doesn't have that limit, but nobody's really interested in running that because that would decrease the value of Bitcoin. So realistically, there will never be a, a version of Bitcoin with more than 21 million bitcoins.
0: Okay. Got it. Sorry, I interrupted you.
1: Yes, well, you know, we're, we're getting to the good part now because talking about the block creation process, Satoshi Nakamoto, he actually made it very difficult to do that. He um, what, what he effectively did is he turned the block creation process into a massive guess the number game. Only if you guess a certain winning number, you are allowed to create the next block for the blockchain and the interesting is that the software also self adjusts the difficulty of guessing the correct number because if you, people are adding more machines to the network it just ups the difficulty of guessing the right number um at the moment we have millions of devices around 3 million machines all around the world mining bitcoins participating in this specific process trying to guess play this guess the number game and they're generating more than 100 quintillion gases every second of the day nonstop. Wow. And those, mach- yeah, and that's and that's where the energy consumption comes in because obviously, the machines, those three million machines that are producing that tremendous output, are also using a whole lot of energy in doing so. So altogether, those machines are consuming as much electrical energy as a country like Argentina has more than half a percent of our total electricity consumption just for mining Bitcoin. And by the way, the reason we call it mining is because this whole process is kind of comparable in a. Very- very abstract way to spending resources to extract gold from the ground, except in this case you're expending electricity to ultimately create new blocks and get Bitcoin in return for that.
0: Huh. Um, okay, you've got these, these millions of machines that are, are guessing these numbers, and every time they, they guess the right number, they produce a Bitcoin. How often are these processors successful? How, how many Bitcoins are produced in a day, for example?
1: Well, that's a very fixed amount, so like I said, the protocol cells adjust the difficulty of making new blocks, so it keeps the issuance rate very steady. Uh, and at the moment, you can make 6.25 bitcoins for uh, making a single block. So over a full course of a day, that adds up to 900 bitcoins that can be earned per day and times the current price of $45,000, you can make $40 million per day uh, from participating in this process.
0: I see. Okay, and there's the incentive. Um, so in a way, it's it's you know using the bitcoin spending the bitcoin doesn't have a big environmental footprint but the process of creating the bitcoin of mining the bitcoin as you say it's high highly energy intensive okay so the environmental impact of bitcoin comes down to its electricity usage you know are, are there cases where that's clean energy that's being used obviously electricity can be produced renewably in which case that would that would have a smaller environmental <coughs> footprint or or is Bitcoin traditionally drawing on dirtier sources of electricity?
1: Yes. Well, the unfortunate thing is that the majority of the power draw has always originated from fossil fuel sources. And there was a survey done by Cambridge among the miners several years ago, and they asked the miners, hey, where's your power coming from? And then the miners said, well, uh, for 39% we're using renewable energy, but That leaves a majority coming from fossil fossil fuels. And that 39%, we actually know where that was coming from. That was coming from the south of China, primarily hydroelectric power in the south of China, Hmm. which is something that they could obtain during the summer rain season, because that's when uh, they traditionally had a bit of an excess of power generation over there, which they couldn't really use, which was then subsequently used by the Bitcoin miners, but only during the summertime, because then... After the summer period was over and the rain season was done, those miners moved up to the north of China and started using coal instead for the rest of the year. Um, now, China just banned Bitcoin mining in June, so as, as it stands today, those Bitcoin miners no longer have access to that pretty substantial amount of renewables in the south of China at all. Mm. And instead, we're seeing uh, very big deals. uh, Just recently, a, a very massive deal being signed in Alberta, Canada for one million machines, possibly a third of the Bitcoin network that will be running on natural gas all year round, which would certainly not be an improvement versus the previous situation in China because if you actually consider the carbon intensity of you know uh, moving around within China uh, running part-time on hydroelectric power and part-time on coal the average impact is actually a little bit less than when you're running on natural gas all year long
0: yes and and I want to I want to touch down on both the the Chinese ban on bitcoin mining and this potential deal in Alberta first of all I'm curious about this ban in China, which of course has sent reverberations through the cryptocurrency world. Why did China make that decision? Why did China ban Bitcoin mining? Was there environmental grounds for, uh, for that decision?
1: Yes, very much, because uh, one key reason why they did so was that idle coal mines were being revived for the purpose of ultimately powering uh, these Bitcoin miners and uh, it was also done illegally. So there weren't any proper safety precautions there. So it wasn't just harmful for the environment, but also uh, the ha- an, an unknown amount of people have actually died uh, because of unsafe working situations.
0: Uh, wow. So the carbon pollution coming from reviving these idle coal mines, uh, which China has been hoping to phase out, is actually what led to the the banning in that country of uh, of the mining the impacts of that ban in China, China, as far as I could tell, not too long ago was the site for almost three quarters of all the Bitcoin mining happening in the world. Where do those Bitcoin miners go now?
1: Well, they're definitely looking for a new home. Eh? If, you, if you got these machines, then hey, you're looking to find a new home for them because you want to generate a return on your investment uh, or somebody else will be very willing to pick up pick up those machines because Bitcoin mining right now is extremely profitable. Uh, but those machines are of course actively trying to relocate as fast as possible and a big chunk of that could be coming to Alberta if if that deal is uh, going to be uh, uh, well turn out to be true has it's it's a question whether it will really fit on the Alberta grid
0: so segue to this deal that was announced last week uh, between um, uh, Blackrock Petroleum, Um, to bring, you know, somewhere between 200,000 up to a million of these Bitcoin processors from China to Alberta. Um, You you mentioned that, you know, the Alberta grid, uh, the electricity grid is not uh, a particularly clean grid, a lot of coal, a lot of natural gas still on that grid. So really no improvement um, in terms of the cleanliness of Bitcoin mining. Um, it's really just uh, creating the same amount of pollution, possibly more in a new jurisdiction.
1: Yes, yeah, and you know the, the, the thing is um, had the, the the company hasn't specified how many of or sorry what what exactly will be the machines that will be moving to Alberta. Um but yeah, it could it could represent a third of the entire network and they'll be powered by natural gas. So uh that's that's definitely not, not green. Uh but one of the key questions I had on that deal was how are they even gonna how are they even gonna fit it in on the Alberta grid? Because the mm. total electricity generation capacity in Alberta amounts to um I think they have about eight gigawatts of installed capacity. Whereas if you have a million of these Bitcoin miners, they can draw uh, three gigawatts of power or more, which is by itself more than a country like Ireland. Wow. Uh, and, and, and it's not like there is a massive underutilization of that capacity in Alberta. So uh, uh, that, that kind of left me skeptical that they would even be capable of making it fit.
0: Uh, so, so dirty sources of energy, and is there any incentive for Bitcoin miners to move to jurisdictions with, that are using more renewable energy, or are they simply looking for the cheapest unit of electricity they can find?
1: Well, yes, they want the cheapest source of energy, but they also want the most constant source of energy. The thing with these machines is that once you get a Bitcoin miner, it will typically become obsolete in just one and a half years' time. because. People are constantly working on more powerful, more powerful, e- efficient equipment. And once that equipment is released, it just you know pushes the old equipment out of the market. So you only have a brief period of time to uh, to, to to earn your investment back and make uh, as much profit as possible. So you're gonna run your machine 24/7. That's the general problem with with renewables, and we see that. These miners are actively uh, you know, taking advantage of, uh, well, we've seen them in New York taking advantage of an obsolete gas plant. Uh, we've seen them take advantage of uh, a coal plant in Montana. We see in Pennsylvania that they're now starting to use waste coal, huh, a product that nobody can really use, but now you can burn it for Bitcoin mining, which is mm. e- e- even worse than using regular coal.
0: Yeah, you point to these examples in New York State and Montana where Bitcoin mining is actually bringing uh, dirty sources of energy back online. Um, same thing here in Alberta. They're actually going to have to build, you know, if if they're going to meet that full potential of Bitcoin mining, um, relocate that potential from China to Alberta, they're going to have to create new natural gas plants or, or new power sources, more likely to be polluting ones in order to meet that demand. Um, I've got one last question for you, Alex, uh, which is how do we make Bitcoin mining greener?
1: Well, you know, there is a way to do this without looking at renewables. You can actually change the software. You don't have to run a cryptocurrency on this proof-of-work mining. And the alternatives are already out there in the the world. We already have uh, hundreds of cryptocurrency running on what is perhaps the most popular alternative to Bitcoin's proof-of-work mining. It's called proof-of-stake. And the second largest cryptocurrency of the moment, Ethereum, is actually uh, planning to move from their proof-of-work algorithm to this new Uh proof-of-stake system. If they do that, then they would actually be able to save 99.95% of their energy consumption because it doesn't require any specialized computer equipment to be running in order to to, to make the system run. Um, And and the same could be implemented in Bitcoin, uh, theoretically.
0: Wow. Um, okay, so Ethereum could potentially save ninety nine point nine five percent of its energy consumption just by changing the software. And and how how confident are you that uh, that these uh, these tweaks will be made? Um, do you think Bitcoin will will follow in the footsteps of Ethereum and and change that software so it runs on proof of state rather than proof of work?
1: Well, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, I, I would assume that with all the uh, negative PR, this is draw, drawing to Bitcoin. Uh, that you know, it would be an advantage for Ethereum to uh, be running on a clean algorithm, and you know, if if um, that. Ethereum starts to overtake Bitcoin maybe at some point because people like it more rather than having this polluting algorithm in the background then maybe also the Bitcoin community could start considering making that change I'm assuming that if they see a way to make money of making such a change it will be more attractive to them to do so although hey, you have to consider that for the Bitcoin community over the past years it hasn't really been apparent that there is any need to change at all because they're like okay well the Bitcoin prices higher than ever before mm-hmm. so why change a winning team eh? in that sense they're a bit more <laughs> conservative than uh, the, uh, the the
0: ethereum community interesting interesting do you, do you think more moves by national governments like China to regulate or outright ban um, Bitcoin mining do you think that will have an impact on on the on the Bitcoin mining industry? <laughs>
1: Uh, yes and no, in the sense that th- th- there's always a little bit of a waterbed effect that the policy is only effective if everyone in the world uh, maintains it, and otherwise there will always be some place where you can trade bitcoins and where it will have a value. So yeah. um, okay. it's 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 imperfect compared to you know changing the software.
0: Um, Alex, thanks so much for being on the show today. This was really fascinating. And uh, hey, if if you helped me understand, then I think you've helped a lot of people understand. Uh, So thanks again for your time. You're welcome. That was Alex DeFries, an economist and founder of DigiConomist. For a link to some of Alex's papers and resources, including the Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast this summer, you know that we are running a smart prosperity summertime book club where I have asked every guest what they're reading or looking forward to reading this summer. Here is what Alex DeFries had to share.
1: If I can recommend one article, it's titled The Carbon Footprint of Bitcoin. Very simple. It was released in July in 2019, it's open access.
0: Now, there's a lot happening in the green economy every week, more than I can cover on my own. For everything else, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat. Mike is a senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. And here he is with five other things happening in the
2: green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are the five things I'm watching this week. Number one, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released the first part of its sixth global climate assessment. It finds that the Earth had just experienced the hottest decade in 125,000 years and that humans are the primary cause of temperature increases. For more on the report, tune in next episode for a conversation with renowned climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe. Number two, U.S. President Joe Biden is ratcheting up efforts to reduce pollution from transportation. On August 5th, he signed an executive order that both tightens up emission standards for gas fuel cars in the U.S., and that also includes a voluntary target from the U.S. auto sector to increase electric vehicle sales from 2% today to as much as 50% by 2030. Number three, almost half of the 200 countries who signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement, including China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and India— have failed to update their commitments by the UN's July deadline. Additionally, new commitments from Australia, Mexico, and Brazil were deemed insufficient, while 110 countries, including Canada and the U.S., met the deadline. Number four, Canada and the U.S. continue to struggle with a historic wildfire season. The U.S. deployed more than 20,000 firefighters across 14 states, including California's massive Dixie Fire, which has already destroyed over 1,000 homes. BC continues to be the hardest hit province in Canada, with more than 250 wildfires burning and hundreds of active evacuation alerts. And number five, a new study from the Barcelona Institute for Global Health finds the environmental impact of bottled water is over 3,000 times worse than tap water. By examining the impact of supplying the city's drinking water needs with bottled water versus tap water, they estimate the ecological harm is 1,400 times worse. And the resource extraction cost would be 3,500 times higher. I'm Mike Moffitt, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week.
0: Thanks, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And that's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. A reminder that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. We just like having smart and evidence-based conversations. And I've got to say, I'm very excited about the conversation I'll be having on our next show. The amazing, inimitable climate scientist and communicator Catherine Hayhoe is on the show. I hope you'll be able to listen in. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out September 1st.